So you've heard of Christmas in July, right? Well, today we're having Palm Sunday in August. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 12. I'm going to look at verses 12 through 19. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 9. I encourage you to listen as is appropriate for God's Word. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So read the words of the living God. So I don't know how many of you like musicals, but even if you're not a fan of musicals, you probably know the most famous song of the musical, Fiddler on the Roof. What is it? Oh, we have a little conflict. I was thinking of tradition, right? You've all heard that. Even if you don't know the song, you've heard that. We are a people of traditions. It's not just the Jewish people. Human beings, we love traditions. We celebrate important things through our rituals and typically an annual celebration of the things that matter to us. I mentioned to you last Sunday that uh, the Thursday prior was uh, Krista and my 27th wedding anniversary. We did get to celebrate on Monday, by the way. Uh, and this past week on Friday was my second child's birthday. And as we do every year, we celebrated her birthday. And when we have these traditions, there are typically things that are common in our celebrations. Uh, maybe music, like at birthdays, we always sing happy birthday. There's sort of a symbol for birthdays, the birthday cake. I prefer, prefer pie, but it's sort of lasting in our culture that you think about uh, cake. Or think about the, uh, the celebration of the 4th of July that we have every year here in America to celebrate our independence uh, from England, something that happened hundreds of years ago, right? We, we sing the Star Spangled Banner, or at least it's typically played. We shoot the fireworks, we have the flag, the eagle, which symbolizes America, and we celebrate every year something that's important to us as a nation. Well, the Jews did this, of course, and they had three major celebrations every summer. 
every, every uh, harvest time. Uh, in the early spring, the early harvest, and then the, the planting for the, for the summer ahead was the Passover, and then they had other feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles kind of culminated the year. And the big one was that first one, Passover. Every year in the springtime, uh, the, the children of Israel would gather in Jerusalem, and they would remember the great deliverance of God for his people. You remember the story. Israel was dominated by a harsh dictator named Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and they cried out to God for help, and God sent a man, a savior of sorts, a leader to come and lead them out of slavery to Egypt to the promised land. That, that leader was Moses, and he came and performed great signs, if you recall, what we call the ten plagues. He, by God's power and grace, caused the whole land to be filled with frogs at one point, and locusts, and flies, and he turned the water into blood. But the big one, the one that would change history forever, was when the angel of death went through the camp of Israel and Egypt, through the entire people. And God said, anyone who does not have the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, the angel of death will kill the firstborn male in their household. And the Israelites, in faith and obedience, put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, and the angel of death passed over those homes, and their firstborn males were spared God's judgment. And of course, Pharaoh then allowed God's people to leave. So you can imagine the significance of that event, the death of your firstborn son. To be spared that, the people remembered. And generation after generation after generation, the people were told to gather on this time of year in the springtime and remember God's grace and mercy and his power in delivering his people. Now, there was a period of time when the Jews forgot this, but then God raised up another, a king named Josiah, and he reinstituted the celebration of the Passover, and they didn't forget after that. They continued to celebrate it. So that is the setting for this event that we read about today. We saw this last week in the first part of chapter 12. This is right near the Passover time. All the people of Israel came to Jerusalem and we saw in our text that I just read to you, it was a large crowd. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, uh, about 40 years after this, recorded that there were 2.7 million Jews who converged upon Jerusalem for Passover. So you figure 40 years prior, the number was probably somewhat close to that. And even, even if those numbers are inflated, imagine 2 million people converging upon Jerusalem. I mean, that's, that's the population of Colorado Springs and Denver put together. Imagine everybody from Denver coming down and joining us in Colorado Springs. Like, everybody in Denver. What would we do with them? How would we feed them? Where would they stay? That's a lot of people gathered in a small community at one time. You can see why the money changers, this was their Black Friday. You know, they made some big bucks during, uh, during this time period. So they all came uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate. And part of the Passover celebration included the singing of the Hallel. This was 
what, what uh, I read to you, what, uh, what Rich proclaimed aloud, it culminated in this Hosanna, or Hosanna in Hebrew. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, every day of Passover, the choir in the morning would sing Psalms 113 through 118, and it would, the, the great climax was this, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That was part of their tradition they did year after year after year. So the idea of singing this Hosanna and this, this uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, there's nothing unique about that happening at Passover time. But it was unique for them to do it out in the, in the highways and byways while a particular man was approaching the city, which is what they did. They heard that Jesus was coming, and the people went out and met him on his way. And as we put all the gospel accounts together, they started taking off their coats, and they started crying out with great shouts as they saw Jesus coming, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was unique to sing this to one individual. Another thing that was unique is the waving of palm branches. Palm branches were not part of the Passover celebration. It was part of the, the third feast of the summer, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths where the people would actually form little tents out in the, in the uh, harvest area to, to dwell in, and they would often make those with palm branches. So the question is, why are they singing this to this man, Jesus, and what's with the palm branches? They're, they're a couple months too early. What's going on here? Well, we're going to look at Psalm 118, which the crowds cry out here, if you'd like to turn there with me and look, look through this, and see if we can determine what's happening. Psalm 118 was a psalm that eventually became a messianic psalm. What that means is Jewish scholars, as they studied this psalm, along with many others, began to see certain themes reappear. And they had great anticipation of the son of David who would come to reign and rule over Israel. The Messiah, the coming king, the child who would be born to us to sit on David's throne. And so they began to read some of these psalms as prophecies of the coming of that Messiah. And Psalm 118 is one of those psalms. that They said, oh, we see what's going on here. This is not just a song for the people to sing. But it's a psalm or a song looking forward to the time when the king would come. So Psalm 118 begins, first of all, with the whole group singing together about God's kindness. Look at verses 1 through 4. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Imagine the whole two million people singing together in unison. God is kind. God is great. Let all of us sing together. His love is everlasting. Exactly. Siri's got it. 
That's the cry of the whole people together. But then the psalm switches from first person plural, we are all saying this together, to talking about one specific individual. And as the Jewish theologians began to ponder this, they deduced that this was talking about the king who would come and deliver Israel. So have in mind this coming Messiah, this king, this deliverer they're waiting for as we look at verses 5 and following. Here's the king speaking. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, this coming king has great faith in the Lord. He's surrounded by his enemies, but he knows if he cries out, Yahweh, the, the God of the heavens, will deliver him and rescue him. What can man do to me if God is on my side? We see that theme over and over again in the New Testament, don't we? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. This one who is coming will not care what man thinks of him. He will certainly not entrust himself to the kings and the leaders of his day. His hope will be found in one place and one place only. In God. And God will deliver him. And he says, my enemies will mount their attack, but I will overcome in the power and the strength of Yahweh, of the Lord. He says, all nations surrounded me. Now catch this phrase repeated three times in this section. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This coming one is going to say, I don't care about anyone who opposes me. I've come to do the will of God or his Father. He is my joy. He is my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. He knows God's going to give him victory, and we're going to celebrate, or they're going to celebrate. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. They didn't know who this was yet. And this is not really part of what I plan to say, but do you hear the story of Jesus in this so clearly? 
Here's your little added bonus for the day. I'm not going to charge you for this part. Read, this is how you read the Psalms. Do you hear the story of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, the life of Jesus being portrayed here? Put yourself in Jesus' mind. This is Jesus saying, yes, I'm going to be disciplined severely, but I will live because God is not going to let him stay dead. He will bring him back to life. He will not give him over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. So now the crowds, the people, began to hear this king recite this trust in the Lord, and they get excited, and their faith is stirred. And so now they cry out about this king. They cry this out. The stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. They get it. This king, this coming one, is going to be pushed aside by the leaders and by the rulers, but they know he is going to actually be the foundation of the temple of God, of the city of God, of everything God is building. They're crying this out. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You can hear the celebration, the hope, the victory they are ex expecting to come. And then, verse 25, in the Hebrew, Hosanna. Hosanna. O Lord, we beseech thee, save us. That's the cry. Save us. Raise up this king, this deliverer, and save us from our enemies. We believe in you. We trust you. Do this. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity or, or blessing or favor. And then... The cry of verse 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're anticipating the time when that king would come and their deliverance would be at hand and they would cry out to the Lord as they see that king, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. They did this year after year after year after year at Passover. And then they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And they decide he's the king. He's the one. Why would they decide that? Well, the text tells us. He's done amazing things. He's turned water into wine. He's walked on water. He's fed 20,000 people with loaves and fishes. But just in their rearview mirror is the testimony of this man, Lazarus, who died and is now alive again, walking among them. Jesus, with one word, called him forth. And they say, what other sign could God possibly perform it would cause us to think this is not the king. 
And so they find out Jesus is coming, and they rush out by the hundreds of thousands, and they cry out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is that one who's coming in the name of the Lord. That's our king. He's come, finally. But what's with the palm branches? I mean, they're in a culture where date palms are all over the place. They're, they're frequent, but, but why now? Again, this is, this is something that foreshadows, that, that, that shows up later on. Well, there's something that happened in between the uh, Testaments. You know, Malachi is the end of the Old Testament, and the Lord went dark for 400 years. He didn't speak to his people for 400 years. So we don't have inspired testimony of what happened between Malachi and, and the New Testament. But we do have other historians that tell us of at least one event that was significant in the history of Israel that happened uh, within 200 years of Christ's coming. As you know, Israel, from the 6th century B.C. onward, they were in constant exile. They disobeyed God. They broke the Old Covenant. They broke the Ten Commandments. And God kept warning them through the prophets, I'm going to destroy you if you continue to commit idolatry. And finally, God made good on his promise. And he brought nation after nation after nation to persecute and to, to rule over Israel. He had the Babylonians, he had the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks. Alexander the Great finally came. And remember, his plan was to unite the entire world under the Greek culture. And he went out and conquered everybody. Amazing military leader. But he eventually died. And when he died, his kingdom began to be divided up as other lesser kings arose. Egypt overruled uh, Israel again for a while, and then Syria. And at the time of uh, the, the early 2nd century BC, Syria is now the, the dominant force over Israel, and the, the, the Jews are, are forbidden from practicing their religion. Uh, this, this, this started with the Greeks, and it continued on through the other groups. They were forbidden from circumcision, which, of course, was commanded them by God. Uh, they were forbidden to sacrifice at the temple, and they lost control of the temple, lost control of the city. They had no rights to worship as they wanted to. And there was a man named Mattathias Maccabees who he and his sons led a revolt. And Judas Maccabees, Judas the Hammer, as Maccabees is translated, uh, Judas led the revolt and he pushed the Assyrians out of the temple area and the Jews once again began to celebrate and, and uh, sacrifice in the temple. He was killed, but his brother Simon Maccabees, another hammer, came and he raised up a guerrilla army and they pushed the Assyrians out of Jerusalem and once again, the Jews were allowed, were able, were free to practice their religion in the temple and in the city. And you can imagine the celebration that took place when finally they had rescued their temple, their holy place, and their city. And after Simon drove out the enemy, they had a big parade, and guess what they used to celebrate this, this military hero who had thrust off their enemies? 
palm branches. They ran out, cut off palm branches, began to wave them in celebration of God's deliverance of them from their enemies. And the palm became a, a significant, uh, quite literally a significant element in Jewish uh, tradition. They actually had coins with palms on them from that point forward. Now, their, their freedom didn't last very long. In 63 B.C., the Romans showed up and took over the Jewish culture again. They did give them quite a bit of freedom, but they installed their beginning of their puppet kings, Herod and, and the line of, of those guys, to rule over Israel. But the Jews were under the thumb of Caesar from that day forward. So here's this one Jesus. They are convinced is the fulfillment of all the messianic promises. And just like they did with Simon Maccabees, they go and they chop off palm branches and they begin to wave them. Hosanna, Lord save us, blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. Fully expecting that the Messiah is going to thrust off the Roman rule just as Simon did Syrians and David did, and other leaders in the past. Now the next question is, what is Jesus going to do about this? Remember, we've already seen, they've tried to make him king before. At one point, after he fed the thousands with the loaves and fishes, they're ready right now to make him king. And do you remember what Jesus did? Uh-uh. He slipped out. I'm not going to be your king. On another time, they're ready to make him king, and he starts saying very hard things to them. Let me tell you what, I, what I'm here to, to, to do, people. If you're going to follow me, you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. And suddenly this mob, this crowd that wants to worship him and honor him says, Ugh, no thanks. And they run off. It's at that point, if you recall, Jesus looked at his 12 disciples and said, are you all going to leave too? They didn't like what they heard anymore, and they left him. He slips away. Time hasn't come. He's not ready to be king. So the question is, what is he going to do now? Is he going to subvert the issue? Is he going to give them some more hard things? Is he going to just slip out from their midst? Not this time. His time has come. This time, he goes and he finds a young donkey. Remember from the other Gospels, he sends his disciples into town and says, you're going to find a, a colt tied up there. It's never been ridden. Bring that colt. And if the owner says to you, what do you need? Say, the Lord has need of this, and he'll send it. So he mounts this donkey, and he allows them to continue to worship him and cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What the disciples don't understand at this point that John tells us later on they got was that Jesus was self-consciously fulfilling Zechariah 9. Let me read Zechariah 9 to you. This is just a couple of verses. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. I know... Uh, John's gospel starts with fear not. He's probably grabbing a line from Isaiah 
before he reads Zechariah 9. That's, that's commonplace in the New Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This king is coming and he's going to reign over the entire world. And he's coming on a colt. And Jesus says, now is my time. He says, bring out that colt. I'm getting on it. On we go as they cheer and proclaim his majesty. In Luke's gospel, we are told that the Pharisees are, they are incensed over this. And they say to Jesus as he's riding in, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you hear what these people are saying? They're acting like you're the Messiah. Tell them to be quiet. Remember what Jesus said? If I shut them up, the rocks will cry out. My time has come. I am the Messiah. There's something that does not fit in this story. Have you all seen the right movies? Okay, so I'm the main character, the leader, the king, the majestic one, the, the rescuer, and I come riding into town. What am I riding? A horse, a big, strong steed of a horse, and it rises up on its hind legs, right? And I cry out, hi-ho, silver, and away or something, right? That's the majestic image. This is a baby donkey. It's this high. I mean, Jesus no doubt had to hold his knees up from scraping his toes on the ground, Imagine being a, a disinterested party up on the hill somewhere and you see this mob of people who have thrown down their coats like a red carpet treatment. They've cut down these palm branches and they're waving and they're screaming and shouting these big majestic themes and this little man on a little donkey holding up his knees running all over the place like this. It doesn't fit. Because Jesus was not coming to be the kind of king they were looking for. They are so committed to what they want Messiah to be, that they don't really care what he's saying and doing. No, no, this one, he's going to throw off the Romans so we can finally be free. And Jesus says, that's not what I came for. I did not come the first time 
to ride my white horse and to kill all of your enemies and to bring you that prosperity, that temporal, material prosperity. That's not your biggest problem. This is what Jesus said to the Jews over and over again in different ways. Your biggest threat is not someone who lives in Rome. Your biggest threat is not someone who carries a sword. Your biggest threat is that someday you're going to die and stand before a holy God at judgment. And if you are a sinner, if you've been unrighteous even one time, there's only one just pronouncement before that holy tribunal. Guilty. And he said this to them as many different ways as possible, and they didn't get it. In fact, we see at the end of this passage, the Pharisees are fed up. You can imagine the chief priest. Remember we saw this last week? The chief priest saying, we got to stop this man. It's better for one man to die so the whole nation is not taken away. And they're all saying, look, we got to shut this guy up, and we have to kill Lazarus. Because Lazarus is proof positive that Jesus is somebody. And now they say, y'all have failed. We've done nothing. Look at him. The whole world going out there. They didn't get it. And if we understand the story correctly, it sure appears that a vast number of these hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who are crying out, Hosanna, 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 in one week's time are going to cry out, crucify him. Kill him. Be done with this. Why? Because Jesus did not come into Jerusalem and say, okay, it is time. Get your sword sharp, men. We are going layer by layer all the way to Rome to take Caesar down and usher in God's kingdom. That's not what he said. And that's not what he did. How appropriate for him to come in on a donkey. As Zechariah says, he will be humble. Not majestic. Because when Jesus came the first time, he was not coming as the lion. He was coming as the lamb. Lambs are not ferocious. Nobody shrieks in terror from a lamb. He didn't come to take the crown first. He came to take the cross first. It begs the question, doesn't it? What are we wanting Jesus for? Is there ever desires in our hearts where we think, Jesus is here to, to meet my felt needs, to make me happy? I'm suffering here, Jesus, and, and you're supposed to be my Savior, so make the suffering stop. 
or things aren't going my way. I don't like this. And you, Jesus, need to change my circumstances so I like it better. Now, we, we know better. We don't ever say that out loud. But do we ever think that in our hearts? Even if your answer is no, you don't do that. If you ever grumble or complain, it's the same thing. I'm not happy, and I'm going to make sure somebody knows about it because God's not doing what I want him to do. When we do that, and we all do that at some level, I'm sure, when we do that, we have forgotten what Jesus came for the first time. He did not come to bring us satisfaction. He did not come to make everything happy. He came to make peace between us and a holy God. And by going to the cross, just a week's time, less than, from this Palm Sunday, by going to the cross, he made peace between you and a just God. There is no greater threat to mankind than a holy God. None. Where's your heart? Where's your mind? What is your expectation of Jesus? If we get this, we really get it, we're done with complaining. We're done with grumbling because we've been spared the eternal threat and he has promised us eternal life. What can man do to me, as the psalmist said? What do I have to fear? The worst thing that can happen in this life is nothing compared to eternity with Christ. So we have to be careful in our own hearts. We have to be careful as we preach the gospel, that we don't preach a gospel that tells people Jesus will make you very, very happy the way people think of happiness. Now, if by happiness you mean profoundly joyful, yeah, he'll make you happy. But if you mean all your relationships are going to get cleaned up, you're not going to have any struggles, you're going to get that promotion you've been looking for, you know, your, your family's going to be perfect, you're going to get everything your heart's ever wanted, we cannot preach that gospel and deliver people from the wrath of God. Now, that's not the end of the story. The Jews were not entirely wrong. They were just early. Because as the story unfolds, the king will return to this earth just like he left, and he will ride on the white horse. And it will rear back on its hind legs, and he will pull out his sword, and he will destroy all of our enemies. And then we will live happily ever after. 
And then there will be complete and total satisfaction for our souls. And then we will have no disappointment, no strife, no struggles, no pain, no suffering of any kind. But not till he comes back. In the meantime, we persevere in faith and hope and righteousness. And it's hard. And it gets harder. But someday he's coming. And we will sing again, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We lost a soldier this week. Our brother Bob, he beat us. And I promise you, even for Martha, he would not come back here if she begged him. Because once you've set your eyes on the face of Jesus... There is nothing and no one on this earth that can tell you to come back. His fight is over. He has gone to his reward. Your fight continues. And the, the enemy is not this, anybody in this room or in your household. The enemy is the kingdom of darkness who wants to destroy the kingdom of light. Now, he can't because Christ has already won the victory. But we're still engaged in battle, waiting for our high king to return. And now the call is to fight on, to stand firm, putting on the armor of God, devoted to Jesus until he returns.